The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is God's word. Amen. All right. Thank you, Cassie. All right. If you guys would join me in prayer one more time, and we will uh, get cracking here. Father, we thank you for your kindness over us. Uh, we thank you that we get to enter into this conversation that you've started in ages past about forgiveness. Uh, God, I thank you for each and every single person here and just for providing them with safe travel and health that's allowed them to be here. Um, we do pray for those who were not able to be here, especially for uh, reasons of travel and health. And God, we, uh, we just pray that uh, this, this word that I feel like you've been giving to me for the past week or so would be a word that is good and encourages and strengthens and comforts your people in a meaningful way that uh, encourages us to not lean on our own strength, but to lean only on Christ. And, uh, and yeah, that it gives us a little bit of joy and encouragement as we uh, continue, as we continue. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, for anybody who has not been around for a little while, we are doing a series called Things Christians Do. We've been doing it for about five or six weeks or so at this point. And so basically the premise of this series is we take just verbs that we kind of generally associate with Christianity. Uh, we did a message on prayer. We did a message on reading the Bible. And we've kind of gone through this list. And today we find ourselves at forgive. And so that's kind of what we're going to be going through today. Now, uh, there's, a, there's a handful of ways to define forgiveness. So I'm going to give us a flat definition that hopefully we can keep referring to because we can see forgiveness as like, oh yeah, I had to forgive this guy who, you know, uh, was talking too loud in the, in the room next to me or something like that. I think that we should um, specify, while forgiveness can be a wide range of things, I do think it's, it's helpful to, to define forgiveness as releasing hostility and ill will towards those who have wronged or offended you. I'm going to say that again. Forgiveness is releasing hostility and ill will towards those who have wronged or offended us. Now, it's interesting to think that this is, this, that this is in the series called Things Christians Do, because if you ask a lot of people in our everyday culture if uh, forgiveness is something that Christians do, I think a lot of them would say, well, it's something that they're supposed to do. I don't know if Christians actually have a wide reputation for being genuinely forgiving people. I think that in many occasions, we have a reputation for being very rigid and for, at times, uh, holding to very like, harsh stereotypes of others and of setting big rules and building big walls that we don't want others to cross. 
but I don't know if forgiveness is something that we have a reputation for on the larger scheme of our American culture. The worst thing is that even as the church is fighting its own demons when it comes to forgiveness, the rest of the culture seems to be growing more and more jaded about forgiveness too. When you look at a lot of people on the left who kind of make that their, their core identity, a lot of them are saying, look, if, if forgiveness is a way that we give power to the oppressor, and so we can't forgive because that's actually allowing the oppressor to keep their heel on the back of our necks. And if you look at conservatives, they're starting to feel like, well, look, we, we, we've been nice for too long. We need to start like, you know, really throwing some punches and, and stop needing to be forgiving. So you've got people on both sides who are starting to lean more and more away from the idea of believing that forgiveness is a healthy and natural thing for maintaining relationship. So I think there's an incredible urgency and a need for Christians to recognize just how powerful and meaningful and honestly crucial to our identity as being children of God that forgiveness really is. And honestly, I, I could launch right away into here's why you should forgive, here's what it looks like to forgive. I could make this the most practical sermon in the world, but I'm actually going to take a few minutes to completely zoom out. Because what's interesting is that when we look at the New Testament, it rarely says just to forgive. It often says forgive as you've been forgiven. The notion with which we are meant to understand how to forgive others is built on the forgiveness that God gives us first. And so we're gonna zoom out all the way back and we're gonna try to assess God in his experience of humanity. Now, even as I say that, you're probably saying, John, that's not possible. And you're right. It is tremendously hard to imagine how God experiences humanity. In fact, it literally is probably impossible for us. I mean, God is the, he, he, he preceded all of creation. He is the mind behind everything that, is, that exists and that runs all of the laws of physics are occurring because he's keeping those wheels spinning. Like, how do you get inside a mind like that? Specifically, though, what does God feel when he sees the world in the state that it's in? Or even he sees the world in the state that it's been for a long time, for decades, centuries, millennia. What effect do we have on God? Is he mad? Is he apathetic? Does he not care? Like we said, I still believe there's too much mystery for us to defog and understand the heart and mind of God, but I also think that we need to try, and there are some clues that we're given 
And before we get into that, we're going to start again even further. We're going to start with a story that we've started with a million times, the creation story. Now, we cut out a few details. Many of us know these. God, there's nothing at first. Then God makes trees and water and the sun and the stars, and he's just kind of plotting things around, making night and day and, and all this stuff. And then you get the sense that he pauses and he says, all right, the next thing I'm going to make is really important. This one I'm going to put my back into. And he makes people. He makes man. He makes woman. His most precious, most valuable creation. Something that he doesn't just speak into existence. He puts a little bit of himself in his creation when he makes men and women. When he makes our great, great grandparents the family that we belong to. And the interesting thing is that God doesn't make the world complete, right? Like God doesn't make the world, like God, God makes the world kind of in a way that a father gives his daughter and son a big box of Legos and says, go crazy. I can't wait to see what you make out of this. Like that's the world, this, the world that Adam and Eve inherited was, for, for better or worse, primitive. It was basic. God wanted them to develop it, to build things like culture, to develop things like music and art and architecture and communities and towns. And he wanted, he wanted to see just how much beauty they could instill on this world as a blank canvas. And God gave us this world as this just mass of unfinished potential to just be made beautiful, to reflect the God who is himself beautiful. He wanted a place that could be developed full of love and meaningful community and creativity and worship. There was so much potential for this world we live in. But as we all know, it didn't last. The world would go on to develop, but not in a way that it ought to. This brutal thing called sin swoops into the hearts of both Adam and Eve and everything kind of goes sideways. And even though the world would go on to develop, it would develop like, like, a, like a torn hamstring or like a badly broken limb that's not set into place. It's growing, but it's deformed. It's not going to function properly. It might do a fraction of what it was meant to do, but ultimately it is not meeting its potential by any means. And we see this. We see brothers, the first pair of brothers we see in the Bible killing each other. We see architecture and buildings that were built, not as a way of saying, God, look at this beautiful thing I made, but literally as a way of saying, hey, God, I made this. What can you make, loser? Not as a blessing to God, but as an insult to him. Relationships were supposed to be full of love and care and, and, and mutual sacrifice, but instead they, they turn into infidelity 
abuse, violence, unfaithfulness. Everything that was made to be good was turned sideways. Music was created to be worshipful. The first song, this is, go back to Genesis. The first song in the Bible is a dude singing about how good he is about, at killing people. Kind of makes me feel bad about listening to rap music, I'll be honest. But that's not what it was for. All of these good things have been just distorted and turned on their heads. Neighbors aren't living in harmony. Communities aren't loving each other. People are feeling xenophobic. They don't like people that don't look like them. Even within families, there's conflict. Even within neighborhoods, there's conflict. Everything is painful. And in case you find yourself asking, well, John, I, I've never killed my brother. I've never, you know said a racist slur. I, I, I know what you're saying is in the Bible, John, but this stuff doesn't apply to me. And I, I would challenge you on that. And I would challenge you by asking you one question. Who do you turn into when you have no one to hold you accountable? If you were to literally stop trying to be good, righteous, fair, loving, caring, what would you, what would you turn into? What's your neutral self like? Is it admirable? Is it God-glorifying? Is it something that you'd be willing to stand before God and say, here I am? I don't think it is. And so just as we've all been affected by this world that we see way back near the creation story and thousands of years later here with us today, or thousands, millions, I don't know. I'm not getting into that. I already talked about double predestination. Just as we've all been affected in a painful way by this thing called sin, we are all heirs and participants in it as well. The same heart of selfishness that our ancestors used to do terrible evil is still inside of us all whether through our potential for wrongdoing or our realized potential in some cases. To sum it up, this thing called sin has made the world, as a great philosopher once said, not as it's supposed to be. And now we think back to God sitting on his throne with a mile-long TV screen in front of him, looking at every snapshot of humanity inside every bedroom, closet, looking at every public park, aware of all that's happening, the hurt, the pain, the division. And what is his response? When we look at Genesis 6, which many of us know is the passage right before um, God chats it up with Noah and has him build the ark, God says that he looked over humanity and saw that it was evil in their thoughts, and his heart was grieved. Now, I, I think that something that we often forget when we think about uh, what it looks like to, to do wrong or to, to fail to meet God's expectations is a lot of times we kind of look at it like it's a law that's been broken. We did a thing that we weren't supposed to do. 
Like there's like some ordinance in divine city hall that we violated. But what we're seeing here is that God is not just having his law broken by human hearts. His own heart is affected by it. He's grieved. He feels a sense of pain when he sees the state of human beings. And when God saw evil that broke his law and grieved his heart, he responded literally as any judge worth their salt would do. He punished it. He was just, and his response was righteous and good and fair for a good judge who is holy and blameless to punish those with blame and flaw. However, and this is probably the turning point that all of us, it's, it gives us the hope that all of us live on to this day. In the infinite, indescribable, divine heart of God, he was not content in being just. He was not satisfied in only judging sin. God felt compelled to also show mercy. Despite the blatant wrongdoing of a world that was poised towards harm and offense, despite how undeserving we've all been, the heart of the divine was moved with compassion. And so he devised a plan that would span across thousands of years to rebuild all that was broken so that he might take those who were guilty and forgive and forget. So God launches this plan that involves Noah and also Abraham and also King David, and there's a string of people, and there's a bloodline, and there's prophets, and there's a temple, and there's all this stuff going on that all leads to this guy Jesus Christ, son of man, son of God, God in the human flesh. And he would uh, hand out miracles and he would, he would kiss babies and he would high five lepers and he would spend time with a broken world, not affording himself luxuries that he was definitely due, but allowing himself to be and live with the lowliest of the lowly. And then when his life ended, the evil people in the world killed him. And as he was dying, he took the punishment for every sin that his people would commit. And he would die gruesomely, and he would die with these last words, it is finished, and forgiveness would be done and offered for all. And so now, because of this grand story of God and his heart, and his compassion, and his willingness to forgive, we can say and mean things like our passage from today. We can truly say and worshipfully mean it when we say, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, for as high... As the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So before we can talk about our responsibility to forgive, we need to sit and meditate in what it means to be forgiven. If forgiveness is something that is a, is, a, is a thorn in your shoe, the invitation that we see throughout all of the Bible, it's not the command to forgive, it's the promise that we've been forgiven. It's the gift that we've already received. That is what we're meant to meditate on, and our forgiveness will flow out of that. And so then we have uh, two times in the New Testament, separate occasions, it has the phrase, forgive as you've been forgiven. Jesus says, well, how many times are we supposed to forgive Jesus? He's like basically as many times forever. Like you don't, you don't stop. If you can count out 490 times that someone offends you, well, then, then forgive them even more than that. Like Jesus says, we don't, we don't stop forgiving. Jesus also said that if we don't forgive, then the likelihood of us ourselves being forgiven is steadily declining, which is kind of scary. And even in 1 Corinthians, it says that not only should you forgive, you also shouldn't keep a list of wrongs. You shouldn't keep grudges. You shouldn't keep a list of the things people have done that have hurt you. We're supposed to throw everything out, I guess, which is mind-blowing. Clearly, they take this stuff pretty seriously. And so now that we've gotten that, now I can get into some points <laughs> about what it looks like to forgive and just like some general things about forgiveness that I felt were worth mentioning. Here's my first point. Know thyself. You guys have heard me preach before, you know that one of my favorite quotes from the esteemed Charles Spurgeon is, the greatest book that any person will ever read is the book of their own hearts. The greatest book you'll ever read is your own heart. Here's the thing. Our relationship with forgiveness and how we look at others who have wronged us is always going to have this link between how we see God and how we see ourselves. People who struggle with just deep, harsh shame are going to relate to forgiveness in a different and honestly flawed way. If you don't know how to receive God's forgiveness, it is going to affect how you forgive others. On the flip side, if you're the kind of person who doesn't naturally take accountability for actions, that is also going to make forgiveness and how you approach that with others look more difficult. So if, again, if forgiveness is something you wrestle with, or even if it's an idea you want to explore, you should start by opening up the book of your own heart and reading it. I mean, the best question to ask is, what have you experienced? 
people who have experienced really heavy wrong struggle with forgiveness. And that's natural. But that's something you have to know about yourself so that you can allow other people to minister to you and so that when you're talking to God and wrestling through these, you can let God speak to that area of your life. But honestly, like, just pouring contempt and and obligation on yourself when it comes to these things is almost never actually helpful. You need to know what your wounds are and be able to reach out to God and pray that he would help nurse that. I also believe, and I think this is very important, there is a difference between will and posture. When we talked about worship a few weeks ago, we talked about how worship is both an action that you do, but it's also a place that your heart goes as well. I think forgiveness is the same. You can feel a a, a strong sense and a strong desire to forgive someone that just overflows out of your feelings, but you can also act in the place of forgiveness as well. I would say that many people who say that they don't know how to forgive or they're incapable of forgiveness, they're usually getting caught up in the posture, but they're not recognizing that you actually have a lot of control over your will. I mean, it's Paul himself who said, take every thought captive. Don't just allow your will to be taken over because of some kind of internal struggle that you have. You have to seize that and let the Holy Spirit help you in that as well. So I think that's one of the first points we'll make. That's not it, sorry. I would say beware false forgiveness. Now, I say this one honestly because uh, this is something that I genuinely struggle with myself. I'll tell you a little something about me. I am painfully averse to conflict. I hate it. I will avoid it at any time, any place whatsoever. And so what I've recognized is I, I come across like I'm just the most forgiving guy in the world. You, you, uh, you know, step on my brand new shoes, you, you know, key my car, you, you know, do whatever you want. Not, oh, I forgive you, man. No problem. Hey, it's all good. Hey, no, no worries. But the, the problem with me in that is that I don't want to actually take the time to experience the hurt of what happened And honestly, I can feel so desperate to not lose a relationship that's valuable to me that I just won't, I'll act as if no offense exists in the world. And so you could look at someone like me and say, oh man, John's just got forgiveness down to a T. And I I don't. I don't have forgiveness down to a T because I don't speak my mind. I don't share actual feelings of hurt and offense with, with, with people all the time. So be, be wary of these fake types of forgiveness that happen. Also, be, be, very, be, be very aware of forgiveness that's used to, to shield accountability. 
I know that some of us, especially some who may have come from very uh, Christian backgrounds, you might be used to having your feelings shoved down or invalidated because, oh, well, you have to forgive. Why are you upset? Why are you saying something? You have to forgive this person. And that's not forgiveness. If you're just spitting out forgiveness or, or words that have no meaning to them, but there's not an actual expression of offense and recognition of wrongdoing, that's, then that's just, that's just trying to stitch something up because you don't want to deal with the, the, with the issues. And honestly, everything we see in how Jesus is calling us to amend hurt or harmed relationships is we have to get our hands dirty. And that's not easy. But I'll get to that more later. So, forgiveness is a community effort. What do I mean by that? I, I had a, a dear friend who experienced a level of wrongdoing and offense that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. It was criminal charges involved and, and childhood abuse involved and, and just some of the most wretched stuff you've ever heard. And I'm talking to this dude and he's like, I don't know what it looks like to forgive this person. And it felt so easy for me to just be like, oh, just do it, man. It's no problem. You know, don't you know Jesus died for you? Like, come on, piece of cake. But I didn't want to coerce him in a way that was literally undermining a severe trauma that he'd experienced. So I remember one thing that I told him that it was just off the top of my head, but I legitimately felt like the Holy Spirit drove me to say it. I said, well, how about this, dude? If you can't pray for this guy to come to know Jesus one day, I'll do it for you. You don't, you don't have to pray out of that posture of love because you're not there yet. But I'll, I'll do it on your behalf for right now because I still think it's important. Now, I think that one of the things that we fail is like when we are experiencing these deep, like just painful wounds that we're carrying from others, we just carry them by ourselves. And I don't think that's healthy. Again, like, the Spirit of God moves in individuals and it drives us into community. Community will help. Being able to have, not, don't, don't broadcast it, don't post it on Facebook, but have a couple close, meaningful, trusted friends that you can say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm feeling. These are the things I'm thinking about God right now. Like, just have that space to be brutally, brutally honest and let people speak words of life to you, but also let them bear your burdens for you. It is, this, is not, this is a heavy thing, and we'll, and we'll get to this in a second. Forgiveness is not an easy thing. So we should not shoulder it by ourselves. We should shoulder it in the midst of people who love us and can remind us of the good news. True forgiveness seeks reconciliation. 
Now, often when we see forgiveness, it's displayed as this kind of quiet, isolated forgiveness that one person accomplishes on behalf of someone else's sins. You know, uh, Ember and I had this conversation. It was before church. You know, he said something about not liking my shirt. And uh, I was wounded by it. I was. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quietly just uh, forgive him for his sins. And I'm not going to say anything to him. I'm not going to give him the opportunity to recognize that maybe he said something that was hurtful. And maybe that that same comment could also be hurtful to others. The problem with this posture of forgiveness is it's kind of buying into the lie that forgiveness is about us and not the other person. Because remember, when we look at forgiveness that God gives us, God didn't forgive us for his sake. Like he forgave out of an overabundance of love for the people that he was forgiving. So if your whole posture of why you forgive is so that you can find peace, God does give us peace for forgiveness. But that's not all it's for. It should be out of an overflow of love for the person who wronged you. The example that we see from Jesus in the Gospels is literally, if someone sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Now, I don't think what he's saying is, if they don't repent, then you withhold forgiveness and you keep an everlasting grudge. But I think he's saying, there's a dialogue that should happen in forgiveness. If someone's hurt you, and you're harboring that enough to actually need to take the process and time of forgiving them, then what does it mean if you're not willing to approach that person about it? Well, it's, it's awkward. Well, yeah. But again, if, if the reason we forgive others is out of love for them, Love would be allowing someone to see the errors in their ways so that they can grow closer to Jesus as a result. And, and trust me, like I'm, I'm Mr. Nuance. I'm not saying this is going to work every time across the board. Obviously, don't do this with dangerous people and maybe, maybe not even do it with people who are unlikely to take responsibility. But often what I see is we just don't want to get our hands dirty. We want to forgive in a way that affords us peace, but not in a way that affords someone else the ability to repent of something they should not have done. And I got to say, it's not real forgiveness. If you forgive someone from long distance and they're a believer in Jesus and they sinned against you, and you can't tell them? So do we not trust the Holy Spirit anymore? The Holy Spirit that will comfort us through hard conversations? The Holy Spirit that will bring to mind their sins and allow them to respond well? The God who promises that if we do his will, that he'll take care of us? How many promises are we neglecting by not doing this? 
And I, I say this for a couple of reasons, and one is, is honestly kind of personal for me. I've experienced this before. I've experienced people being offended by something derpy that I did and should not have done. Finding out that this person forgave me of a sin that I never knew I committed. And then realizing I didn't actually have the opportunity to repent of something that I kind of wished I'd repented of a long time ago. And that just feels very isolating. And the second is because I do this myself. Because again, I don't like conflict. I don't like arguments. And I don't like sharing that other people have hurt me. Because doggone it, I want to be seen as if I was made of steel and rock. But I'm not. I'm made of skin and all other types of flabby, fragile things. Just like all of us are. Just like all of us are. And so I think that as we consider forgiveness, again, if, our, if, the, if the height of forgiveness for us is so that we can have a restored sense of inner peace and well-being, I think that's 50% forgiveness. I think true forgiveness is one that seeks a true heart of reconciliation and connection and love with the other person. And that's not easy. It's not. I didn't want to write this down. <laughs> I didn't want to preach this today. I was like, man, can I just leave that out? But that leads me to the last thing I have to say tonight, which is forgiveness is painful. Forgiveness is painful. Again, we find ourselves hearing about forgiveness in the New Testament where God says, you must forgive just as I have forgiven. Well, what does it look like that God forgave? Well, it wasn't easy for him either. And so honestly, I want to encourage you guys, if you are feeling discouraged that forgiveness and love for others is not something that comes natural, I just want to remind you that for Jesus, it took the literal shedding of blood for forgiveness to take place. Literal, visceral, physical, spiritual pain is what God experienced for forgiveness. And again, I want to I want to say forgiveness is a vehicle for love. God was moved to forgive just as we said at the very beginning of the message today. God was moved to forgive not because of some desire to just resolve this uh, you know, this this weird feeling inside of his heart but because deep down he was moved with an overwhelming compassion for broken and wounded people. It's an expression of unconditional love. And so because of that, we can remember that the same unconditional love that we're trying and failing to offer is the unconditional love that will tolerate our lousy love and our lousy forgiveness. Your failures to reconcile and have hard conversations will be forgiven, praise God. Your angry, resentful heart, as much as you try to cool it down, will be tamed 
and taught to love perfectly. So don't beat yourself up. Don't let that voice of shame ring too loud. It's going to be okay. There is a love that is perfect and unconditional that is holding us all in place just as we should be. And that is our hope, not our ability to knock every ball out of the park. So I pray that as we think and resonate with that hope, that we would grow in love for that hope and the God who gives it to us. And with grace and the Holy Spirit, we can learn together, all of us, myself included, we can learn how to share this beautiful love of God with others as we forgive just as we've been forgiven. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for, um, thank you for forgiveness. Jeez. Thank you for your great, great love for us. In every difficult thing that we consider or experience, we know that your care can endure it. There are dangerous things that we want to avoid, God. We want to avoid an unforgiving heart. We want to avoid resentment, hatred, malice. And God, I pray that you would just help us ward all of those things away from us. And God, please, just over time, just guide us into this heart of love. It is a hard thing, Father, to love those who have wronged us. It's specifically why Jesus said to love our enemies and to pray for them. And it's worth remembering that we were at one time enemies as well. But Lord, let our anchor be in the full, beautiful, perfect love that you have for us, that you'll not see us be capsized, but that you'll carry us and be our lifeline every time. And we, uh, we lean on that hope tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.